Well, good morning, saints. Good to see you all in church this morning and everyone that's joining us online. I often think on long weekends we should just move the church service into my backyard, right? But special uh, congratulations to everyone who made it out to church today or is watching online. Acts chapter 8, verses 25 to 40. Open up your Bibles to that passage if you're not there already. We're going to bow our hearts in prayer and then we're going to jump in. So let's pray. Father, again, we come before you on a Sunday morning, joyfully longing to receive from your word. We pause now at the onset of this time together to acknowledge your spirit already at work here in the midst of your people, honoring that promise that you inhabit, you live in the praises of your people. So would you now, by your spirit, lead us into all truth? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 8, we're picking up where we left off last week. And friends, if there is one thing that I want you to take away from this Sunday's passage, it's this. God, in Jesus, is able to save even those whom we think are least likely. That'd be a good moment for an amen. Right? When we look out at the world, we often categorize people into subsets of good people and bad people. People that are worthy of our love, worthy of our attention, people who are worthy of being forgiven by God, and others who are clearly, in our estimation, beyond the scope of redemption. Or perhaps it's something more sinister. Maybe you feel that way not when you're looking out over the world, but when you look in the mirror. You look at your own self, you look at decisions that you've made in the past, you look at patterns of behavior in your life, and you think, well, surely I am beyond the pale. Well, in Acts chapter 8, these next few verses, we will be reminded from Scripture that there is no one beyond the scope of God's redemptive purposes in Jesus Christ. When God determines to save you in Jesus he does not fail. Last week, we saw this in the surprising inclusion of the Samaritans in the purposes of God. Remember, Philip went there and he preached the gospel, and the gospel was received with great joy. Demons were cast out. People repented and believed, and they were baptized. And these were Samaritans. The people in Jerusalem looked at people in Samaria sort of the way people in Oakville, look at the people in Burlington, right? Like, could anything good happen there? And yet Samaritans heard the gospel, received it, and repented. That was last week. Well, this week, we're going to see it in the Ethiopian eunuch. But I want us to take a bit of a different approach this morning. We're going to approach this passage by looking at three different, I'm not sure what the right word is, characters, um, Three different actors, and by actors, I don't mean play actors. I mean actors like in the true literary sense. People who are exerting influence and impact upon the narrative and how it works out. They are acting upon the story as it takes place. The first one that I want us to look at is Philip. You see Philip introduced to us in this passage in verse 26, but turn a little bit to the left in your Bible to John chapter 1. Sorry, John chapter 2. Yeah, I believe it's John chapter 1, verse 43. 
the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter, yeah, 143. This is the first time that we meet this man named Philip. And it says in John chapter 143, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found who? Philip, that's right, and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael, who by the way was Philip's cousin, said to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You hear the skepticism? And Philip said to him, come and see. Okay, you can flip back to Acts chapter 8. I just wanted you to see that right from the very onset, Philip's life is marked by this pattern. Jesus comes to him. Jesus calls him. And Philip immediately follows Jesus. Did you see that? And as soon as he receives the good news of Jesus and follows the Lord, he immediately goes and tells his cousin Nathaniel, he's like, Nate, bud, we found him. This is the one that we were waiting for. And Nathaniel has skepticism. He's like, really? From Nazareth? I don't know. But Philip responds by telling him, come and see for yourself. It's little wonder that when we encounter Philip in the account in Acts, that we already see him as a key evangelist. From the very beginning of his walk with the Lord, he was, committing to tell, he was committed to telling others about Jesus. There's a few things I want to look at when we talk about Philip in this regard. The first is that it is often true that new converts are the best evangelists. Have you noticed that? They're so filled with zeal and excitement of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in their life, saving them, that they just are exploding with it, right? And they can't wait to tell everyone about Jesus. That's why people who are new to CrossFit or veganism are some of the most annoying people in the world. They tell everyone because it's changed their lives. But on a serious note, when something radically changes your life for the better, it's a natural reaction to want to tell other people about it. That's why new converts have such a zeal to talk about Jesus. So for those of you who were at Kelvin and Shelley's for the last home fellowship, um, you'll already know this, but if you weren't there, Reuben shared his testimony. It was fantastic. And I feel free to talk about this this morning because Reuben missed church and he's not here. The guy never misses church, and providentially, he's not here. Um, Reuben told the story about being converted to Christ, how his life was saved, how he was radically different because of Jesus. And then there was a question time. And so I asked Reuben in front of the whole crew, I said, listen, Reuben, I know that you tell everyone about Jesus. Like, you stop random strangers in the fruit section at Fortino's and tell them, hey, have you ever heard about Jesus? I said, first of all, do you get nervous when you do that? And secondly, what motivates you? And his answer to the group was this. He said, of course I get nervous. But action displaces fear. I just do it. 
That was good. And his answer to the second question was, he says, well, why do I do it? He said, because I remember what it was like to be lost. And I wish that someone would have told me sooner. Friends, that is why people who are new converts to Christ, like Philip and John, right? They're converted to Christ. The gospel radically changes their life. And they're just like, man, I just got to tell people about this. It's fantastic. A second thing I want to pull out of this, though, is maybe you're saying, sure, that's good for Philip. That's good for Reuben. They're both clearly extroverts, but not I. I'm introverted by nature. I get shy talking to other people. I am reading yet another biography on Eric Little. Do you guys remember who Eric Little was? The Scottish runner. And I was surprised to find out in this biography that actually Eric Little, who had this massive impact for the kingdom of Jesus Christ, most notably through, you probably know about him, through the movie Chariots of Fire, um, he went on and spoke to groups of people, large and small, telling them all about the Lord Jesus Christ. But I was surprised to discover he was painfully introverted. Apparently, he wasn't even an eloquent speaker. And yet, countless people were persuaded of the gospel, not because he was eloquent, not because he was outgoing and made them laugh and entertained them, but because he was sincere. You don't have to be extroverted to be an evangelist and share your faith. You just have to be sincere. Eric Little, it was reported that he shaped and orchestrated his schedule in his life so that he would never say no if he was ever invited to talk about Jesus. If it was possible, he'd always find an opportunity. Introverted man, yet God used him mightily to tell people about Jesus. Isn't that interesting? The third thing I want to touch on is maybe you are a Christian and you've been a Christian for a very long time, but you have lost your Philip-like zeal to tell other people about Jesus. Perhaps it's because you've forgotten two things. Maybe you've forgotten how you were once lost and now found because somebody told you about Jesus. Have you forgotten that? Or maybe... You've forgotten the eternal stakes of the gospel. The worries and the cares of this life. Jesus described them like thorns and thistles that come up and choke out the gospel in our lives. Well, we meet Philip at the onset of this account, verse 25. We're told now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord. They returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And this account that centers around Philip is hot off the heels of him going to Samaria. And here again, he meets up with another man to tell him about Jesus. 
So Philip was this sort of guy who was just zealous for telling people about Jesus. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing I want you to see about Philip is he was sensitive to the prompting and the leading of God. Did you notice that when Glenda read it? Look at verses 26 to the beginning of 27. So he's just come back from Samaria. That's what we're told in verse 25. And an angel of the Lord says to Philip, rise, go toward the south to the road that goes down to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Verse 27. And Philip responded saying, you don't know how busy my schedule is. Perhaps next week. No, what did he say? And he rose and went. Now an angel simply literally translates to a messenger. We're not told exactly what form this angel of the Lord takes in this case. There are places in scripture where we're told exactly what form the angel of the Lord takes. Here we are not, so we don't know. But perhaps you've experienced something like this in your own life. A leading, a prompting. Maybe in some cases it's a knowing from scripture If you steep yourself in the word of God, if you begin to think biblically, then you will find yourself moving out into the world with the conviction of a man or woman who has heard from a messenger, an angel of the Lord. Look at verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. Again, Philip is prompted, and again he's obedient. This time it's not an angel of the Lord or a messenger of the Lord. We're told it's the Lord God himself. The Spirit said to Philip. The third person of the Trinity speaks to Philip and said. So let's just piece this second point together, okay? Um, Philip obeys the angel of the Lord and goes toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. He heeds this messenger of the Lord. And because of his obedience to what the Lord told him to do through the messenger, he's now positioned exactly where the Lord wants him to be so that he can be useful to his Lord and Master. That's what happens. And then in verse 27, we're told that the situation presents itself. Look at verse 27. So he arose, he went, like he was told by the messenger. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Verse 28, and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So, Philip is obedient to the prompting of the angel of the Lord. He goes to this desolate road, and there he has a divine appointment with an Ethiopian eunuch. Seated in a chariot, reading the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit then says, okay, now you're in the right place, you're at the right time, now go over and talk to this guy. And so he does. 
What we see here, friends, is this cascading series of events, this unfolding. Philip has oriented his life around one simple question, one cardinal virtue, if you will. What would the Lord have me do? That's what governs Philip's life. I have, was reading this book this week um, from a guy named William Irvine. The book was entitled A Guide to the Good Life. Have you ever heard of this? It's a book that basically recaptures all the virtues of classical stoicism. So, of course, you haven't read it, right? I think that's just for eggheads like R.D. But um, he raised a really good point in his introduction. He said, he said, each and every one of us have to ask this question. What do you want out of life? He said, when you ask most people that question, what do you want out of life? They usually answer with something like, well, I want a good career, something meaningful. I want a good spouse. I want health. And the, the answer is, well, those are not things that you want out of life. Those are things that you want in life. What each and every person needs is a guiding principle in their life. Because what you don't want is to end up on your deathbed looking back and saying, man, I just wasted and squandered the one and only life that God has given me. Well, he didn't say God. He's an atheistic stoic, but that's my interpretation. You need a guiding principle. And then you need a strategy to see it carried out. Well, the guiding principle for Philip's life was this simple question. And friends, I think it's a really good one for us too. What does the Lord God want from me? Verse 30. He obeys eagerly. We're told, so Philip ran to him. And he heard him reading the Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet. Oh, I wish my life was marked by that kind of joy-filled obedience. Asking the question, what does God want from me? And then obeying quickly, eagerly, joyfully. Where does that sort of thing come from? You know, I think it comes from the most difficult aspect of the Christian life. True and deep surrender. The problem is that each and every one of us live our lives as perpetual toddlers in a me-centered universe. We have such overinflated egos that are encouraged by our secular culture and values where we think absolutely everything is always about me, my choices, my preferences, my desires, my use of time, my use of my money, me, 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 always me. Well, it sounds silly when you say it, but when you look at it objectively, isn't it true? And yet to be a Christian man or woman means to surrender to the lordship of Jesus. To say there is a master, there is a king, he holds all prerogatives, my greatest joy is found in serving him. This north star, if you will, that guided Philip's life and ought to guide ours, what does the master want from me? What does the Lord want me to do?
Well, friends, we, like Philip, ought to seek God's will. So if you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking, all right, R.D., I get it. Um, I want to seek God's will. How do I do that? Well, first, let me just encourage you with this. The very fact that that's even a fleeting thought for you, the very fact that you are even remotely concerned about seeking God's will is a good start. Most people go through life without giving that a passing thought. So it's good. It also serves as evidence that you're in Christ because people who aren't Christians certainly never think that. The second thing I would say, if you want to know God's will, you know God's will by knowing God's word. I I talk to so many Christians who are like pulling out their hair and stressed out at night and saying, I don't know God's will for my life. I wish God would speak to me. And all the while, their Bible sits closed and dusty. If you want to know God's will, get to know God's word. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 11, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. You want to know God's will? You want to be like Philip and be obedient? Know God's word. The third thing is, I'd say start with the basics. If you are agonizing over a question... You're sitting at home, you see your neighbor outside cutting the grass, and you're agonizing. You're like, God, do you want me to share the gospel with my neighbor? The answer is yes. It's not that hard. Start with the basics. And then the next time that God prompts you to do something, whether it's to pray for someone or to share the gospel with them, Be like Philip and run to that obedience joyfully. Just do it. See, Philip's life was oriented around this one point. What does my master want me to do? Okay, verse 30. So Philip runs up alongside and he asks, he's like, hey, bud, what are you reading? He says, do you understand it? Verse 31, the eunuch says, understand it, how can I? I need someone to explain it. Why don't you come up here and pop a squat on my chariot and tell me all about it? Verses 32 to 33. The eunuch says to Philip, look, here's what I'm reading. Now, if you're a student of Scripture, you'll recognize that passage. Where's it from? Isaiah 53, that's right. It's commonly known as the suffering servant passage. This is what the Ethiopian eunuch was reading. He was reading, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Now when we read that, we read it and know that it is a direct representation of exactly what happened to Jesus, isn't it? There's been no one else since that has actually fulfilled exactly what that says. And yet, it was written some 800 years before Jesus even existed on earth. 
So, so what's going on? Well, that's the question that the Ethiopian eunuch asks in verse 34. He turns to Philip and he goes, Who's this about? Verse 35. So Philip opens his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he tells him the good news about Jesus. He preaches Jesus to him from what we would call the Old Testament. And this is the next thing that we see about Philip. He not only knew the scriptures, but he was convinced that they were all pointing to one singular person. That everything in the Old Testament even was pointing not only to a singular person, but to one singular act of God. God's saving work in Jesus of Nazareth. That's the last thing I want to say about Philip. Philip believed that this gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation. Philip doesn't think that there are any prerequisites necessary for this Ethiopian eunuch man to be born again and baptized. He doesn't think that there's any eloquence required on his part. Philip knows that all he has to do is just tell this guy the good news of God's love for him in Jesus, share with him the gospel, and God will cause him to believe and to be born again. These are Philip's convictions. But you know, Philip already has a track record for sharing the gospel with the least likely. We said he shared it with the Samaritans, and now he shares it with this Ethiopian eunuch. Let's have a look at this unnamed man. Look at verses 27 to 28. He's a court official to Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. Now, what you have to do is you have to understand a bit of context here, okay? Kings back then, in Ethiopia in particular, they often reigned but didn't rule. Do you know what I mean? They held the office of often being regarded as sons of God, of the gods, um, but they didn't get involved in the day-to-day ruling of their kingdom. That was something that they handed over to their wives, the queens. And so it's not that odd that we're told here that he was an officer to Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. Candace is probably not a given proper name. It was probably her title, like Caesar. But this guy, this eunuch, we're told, was given charge over the treasury. We're also told that he was a eunuch. At the risk of being indelicate, I'll assume you all know what that means, right? Now, this was a common practice for court officials back in the day. They would be emasculated. They'd be rendered impotent. And that's because they were often traveling with and working in close proximity with the queen or with the king's harem. So this guy in particular, this Ethiopian eunuch, Scripture tells us that he was on his way back from something of a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He had made the trek. Now, if you can picture a map, he'd made his trek all the way from Ethiopia all the way to Jerusalem just to worship God 
and he's now back on his way home. He's most likely a foreign Gentile. He's not a Jew. It's possible that maybe he was a God-fearer, like Cornelius when we see him in chapter 10. But either way, this guy had been motivated to go on this long journey to Jerusalem to worship the Lord God. And on his way home, he's reading the Isaiah scroll. He's reading it aloud because that's what people did in the ancient world. There was no such thing as reading quietly. Already we see the sincerity in this man, don't we? There's an openness and a willing to learn. Willingness to learn. Look at verse 30. He's presented with Philip's question. Philip says, what are you reading? Do you understand it? And he's sincere. He says, no, no, I don't understand it. I need someone to teach me. This guy who was so powerful and presumably rich, he wasn't arrogant, he wasn't defensive, he wasn't dismissive. He says, hop on up here and explain it to me. I pray that we would all have that kind of humility when it comes to the word of God. Verse 34, he asked the right question. He says, who's this about? And then he says, I want to be baptized. Presumably, he had heard about and seen baptisms while he was in Jerusalem. The first couple of chapters in Acts, we're told that thousands of people believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and when they believed, they were baptized. And so he was probably there for that. And so he saw this pattern, right? You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you go get baptized. And so he believed, and he's like, all right, I guess I should be baptized. There's water right there. What prevents me? And Philip's like, let's go. And this all seems natural enough to us when we're reading this passage with you know, a couple thousand years of cultural distance. But I want you to remember where we started. We said that in Acts chapter 8, we see that God saves even the least likely. And there are three things about this man that make him, in the eyes of the original audience, least likely to be saved. The first thing is that he is a big deal. He's rich, he's powerful, he has the world by the tail. He's a heavy hitter. If he had a business card, it would say Ethiopian eunuch, um, finance minister to Ethiopia. This guy's a big deal. And then, like today, it was incredibly difficult for people who were powerful and rich to ever imagine bowing their knee to a Lord. You see, saving faith is a gift from God, but it's one that demands repentance. It's one that demands the humility to bow our knees humbly before Jesus. And Jesus said, it's harder for a rich, powerful person to do that than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, and yet with God all things are possible. He's a rich man. That makes it unlikely that he will be saved. The second thing, friends, did you notice that he is a black Ethiopian African man? 
Have you ever noticed that as you read through Acts? He is the very first individual, although unnamed, that is recorded to have been converted. Up until now, as you're reading through the accounts in Acts, it's thousands of people here, thousands of people there. It's so many people in Samaria. Here we have enshrined for us the very first individual ever to be saved by the gospel of Jesus in the earliest church. And he's not an Israelite. He's not a Jew. He's a black African man. Now in Philip's mind and in the mind of these earliest disciples, that would make him least likely. But friends, we're reminded from this that there is no room for racism in the gospel. We're also reminded at this present cultural moment that the gospel is better than critical race theory. (laughs) I heard an amen. Look, critical race theory, even if you grant it the benefit of the doubt and you say it seeks to do something good, um, it actually ends up doing the exact opposite to what it pretends to want. Critical race theory comes at it and says there is a problem here, but the way to solve it is by group politics and identity politics. Let's put people into buckets based on different categories, and all that that ends up doing is bringing greater division and greater racism. Pigeonholing and segregating people, polarizing them and dividing them. And yet right here, we see that in the gospel we have something better. The very first non-Jewish convert to Christ recorded in all of Scripture is a black African man. And so from the very beginning of the church, in Acts chapter 8, we are reminded that all people stand equal at the foot of the cross. That's why Paul later on will say there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no slave, there is no free. We are all one in Christ. So the first thing that makes this guy unlikely is that he's rich, right? Rich people don't bow their knee. They're self-sufficient. The second thing is that he's unlikely in the eyes of the earliest disciples because he's not a Jew. He's a black African man. And the third thing that makes it unlikely is that he is a genitally mutilated man. Now, this third and final point on the Ethiopian eunuch speaks especially to our present cultural moment. I want you to imagine this man. He's on his way back home from going on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He went there to worship God. He's either presumably gone to the temple or maybe he's gone to one of the local synagogues. And after making this long trek from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship the Lord God, whether he went to a temple or a synagogue, his entry would have been barred. He would not have been allowed into the synagogue. And at the temple, he would have been allowed only to the outer court of the Gentiles. All because of decisions that he made to mutilate his own body. At some point in his life, he weighed out his options. He looked at his future and he decided that the best thing he needed to do was to emasculate himself through mutilation. That's what he decided. 
And this act had cut him off from the people of God. He's now encountered God in Jesus. And he's been confronted with these decisions that he's made in the past. These very decisions that prevented him from entering into the people of God. Sinful decisions that kept him on the outside. And yet here he sits reading Isaiah 53. You don't need to turn there. You can trust me. Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant that foretells Jesus Christ and his substitutionary work on the cross for our sin. In Isaiah 56, Isaiah looks ahead to a day that speaks directly to the plight of this man. Isaiah 56 says that there is coming a day when even an unlikely person like him who has sinfully mutilated himself as an affront to the God who created him male will be welcomed into the household of God and granted an everlasting heritage when he repents and trusts in Jesus. Here's what Isaiah 56 says. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. That's some figurative language. Verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Through his own sinful actions, this man cut himself off from the people of God. But through belief in Jesus Christ and repentance and amending his life, there's a place in the household of God even for him. I want to be as clear as Scripture on this point. Self-mutilation is sinful enough to cut you off from the family of God. And there is nothing loving in supporting and encouraging people to do that. Yet God in Christ is merciful enough to welcome every penitent sinner, every person who believes on his name and is baptized to welcome them into the household of God. To give them an everlasting name among the saints. That's what Isaiah said. You see, one of the great tragedies of this sin in particular, of self-mutilating, is that it prevents people from this eunuch from ever having an enduring name through their offspring and their progeny. And yet God says, but when you repent, even you eunuchs who've self-mutilated, I will give you an everlasting name. Do you see the picture? For those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repent, 
and are truly sorry for their sin and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness. God's saving work in Christ extends even and especially to the least likely. A rich man. An African man. A man who is self-mutilated but now throws himself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. Friends, this least likely convert is included in Acts chapter 8 to give you hope, to cause you to persevere, to remind you that no one is beyond the scope of God's saving work in Jesus Christ. Because verses 32 to 33 tell us that Jesus is the only one who can save. And Philip was able to preach that to the Ethiopian eunuch because Philip knew that the gospel meant that the most important thing for that eunuch was not the things that he had done or didn't do, but what God had done for him in Jesus as his substitute. There was forgiveness if he repented. Philip actually believed what Peter said in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2. Peter said, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. You see, Philip had a heart for the least likely because God in Christ has a heart for the least likely. For you. For your loved ones. For the world. You may look at your family and your friends that you've been pleading with the Lord to save and think, it is impossible. Look at the things that they've done. They're beyond the pale. But friend, no one who has a breath in their lungs or a beat in their chest is ever beyond the scope of God's redemptive purposes if they will repent and throw themselves upon Jesus. Let me be even more specific, and I close with this. There's nothing that you have done in your past that prevents you from being saved. That's the story of the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, you know when we're honest, we could come up with a list a mile long of reasons why you can't save us. Things that we've done. Things that put us beyond the scope of your saving. Certainly, we can feel judgmentally that way about others. But God, I... Praise you and thank you for loving us and saving us in Jesus. For granting us the gift of true repentance, sorrow over our sin, a desire for a changed life, and trust in Jesus for our eternity. I pray, God, that this passage would be a source of encouragement for us to share our faith in Jesus and also a source of hope that we might persevere in praying for others and endure to the end and be saved. I pray this in your name. Amen.